This episode contains a Hapax Legamemnon. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number three of the Beyond Podcast, the podcast that is also questing for the essence of mind and pattern. This is a podcast for all those who have sketched a hand, sketching a hand, sketching a hand, sketching a hand. Hi folks, welcome back. My name is Vadim and I'll be your host again. Welcome to the podcast that discusses matter concepts. So let's start off this episode with a little puzzle, a little math exercise. And if you don't like puzzles, if you don't like math, or if you're already familiar with the problem I'm about to present, well, you can just go ahead and skip to time code. And M, as I will not judge, Mancy. I promise. This exercise comes from Douglas Hofstadter's book, Goethe Escherbach, and it's called the Mew Puzzle. Yeah, that guy again. And it has nothing to do with livestock or bovines. And for all you physicists out there, it has nothing to do with calculating the coefficient of friction. Although if you do know of a physics problem that involves cows and calculating the coefficient of friction, that would be awesome. Please write into the podcast and share. So, as I was saying, this is the mu puzzle, as in the letters M and U. And this is the type of problem that deals with string manipulation. So, we start with some initial string, which is a sequence of characters. We can then apply formal rules to ch make changes to the string. We can apply these rules in any order and any number of times. The goal is to see if we can transform the string from some initial value to some desired target value. In the mu puzzle, we'll be dealing with strings containing only characters M, I, and U. If you are more of a visual person, you can swap those three letters with other symbols like apples, carrots, and tomatoes, or seashells, rocks, and feathers, if that helps. But for my description, I will stick to the problem as it was originally stated. So here are the rules. There are actually five of them, so let's start with the first one. So we start with the string mi, that's our axiom, just those two characters, m and i. We can add a u to a string that ends in an i. So for example, the string mi can be transformed into the string miu. The next rule is that we can double the string that comes after the m. So for example, if we start with our axiom mi, we could transform that into m. I, I. Or if we have a string like MIU, we can double whatever comes after the M and get MIU, IU. The next rule is that any three I's in the string can be replaced with a U. So if we start with a string like MIII, I, I, so that's four I's, we could take the first three of those and change them into a U. So we would get the string MUI. And then the final rule is that any two U's in the string can be removed. So for example, if we have M, U, 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 we can remove two U's and just end up with the string M, U. We can apply these rules as many times as we want until we get the desired outcome. For example, if we wanted to produce the string M, I, U, I, U, we could start with the string M, I, that's our axiom, 
we can then apply rule number one, which allows us to add a U to any string that's end, that ends in an I and turn MI into MIU. We can then apply rule number two, which is our doubling rule and turn MIU into MIUIU. So the sequence of applying rule number one followed by rule number two could turn our starting axiom MI into the desired string MIUIU. So that's one example. However, the challenge of the mu puzzle, as you may have guessed from the name, is to turn the starting axiom MI into the string MU. I'm going to return to this problem in the next episode of the podcast. For now, think about it and send me an email to thebeyondpod at gmail.com. And remember, this is a meta podcast, so you don't necessarily have to solve any of the puzzles we discuss here. You could tell me something about the puzzle, like what do you think about it? How does it make you feel? Do you wish cows were actually involved? Maybe something about mathematics and logic? Or something about the solvability of problems? Again, please send an email to thebeyondpod at gmail.com so we could discuss it in the next episode. The last thing I wanted to mention here is that back on the very first episode, I said that I would be drawing a lot of inspiration and material from Douglas Hofstadter's writings. And in addition to making this podcast, I also like to consume a lot of podcasts and also YouTube videos on subjects like math and science. And one of my favorite YouTubers is the physicist Zabina Hossenfelder, who makes the Science Without the Gobbledygook videos. Now, there's a running joke on that YouTube channel that no matter what the topic of the video is, Dr. Hossenfelder always finds a way to mention Albert Einstein. Now, this works just fine if the video is about something related to general relativity or quantum physics, but she finds a way to also sneak in Einstein in videos about unrelated topics like medicine or the obesity epidemic. So just like that, I'm also going to try and sneak in Hofstadter into this podcast. Now, let's talk about something else. So you may have listened to the podcast and got to this point, or maybe you skipped ahead because you don't like puzzles. Do you wish to file a complaint? You can email thebeyondpod at gmail.com. But keep in mind, it's just me. I don't have a production team and I don't have a team of customer service representatives to hear complaints. But what if I did? Actually, I am just a humble podcaster, so I probably don't need customer support. But imagine that there's this huge corporation with thousands of customers, and the customers call on the phone all the time, and sometimes they call to stop services or start services, sometimes they call to complain, and sometimes they want to know about the bill. And the people in charge, of course, want to make sure that the customers are happy, but at the same time, they want to keep the costs down on customer support. So one of the bosses comes up with a great idea. What if we were to write down all the common customer issues and give customer support precise instructions for what to do? For example, a call comes in and you start off with a standard greeting like, hello, how can I help you? And the customer says, I want to cancel my account. So you say, of course, let me help you with that. May I ask why you would like to cancel service? This workflow could be organized in the form of a simple diagram. Each customer support agent receives this diagram, a notepad, and a pencil. 
On the diagram, there are boxes that represent our current place in the conversation and arrows leading to other boxes. So each arrow would have two labels. One label matches something that a customer can say, and the other label tells you what to say in response, plus any additional actions that you need to perform. For example, we have a box that says start, and there are two outgoing arrows. You follow one arrow if the customer says cancel service, and you follow the other arrow if the customer says pay my bill. And if you follow the pay my bill arrow, you will see that you're required to say, I would be happy to assist you with your bill. May I please have your account number? And the arrow takes you to a box called bill pay. And from bill pay, there's an arrow that tells you how to accept the account information. And for this arrow, there will be a label that says, thank you, please give me a moment to look up your account, plus an instruction to write down the account number on a piece of paper. Even though there are human beings following these instructions, the actual work is rather tedious and kind of mindless. You listen, you speak, you jot down some notes. Sometimes the instructions can be to erase something that you've written down and to write something else in its place, but it never gets more complicated than that. We're glad to assist you and thank you for your service. So the company rolls out the system and the bosses are so proud of themselves. Everyone on the phone in the customer service department has this nice laminated piece of paper with a bunch of boxes and arrows. And for the common cases, they just follow along saying exactly what the instructions tell them to do. But over time, the bosses realize that this isn't enough. In too many phone calls, the customers go off script, so to speak. So the bosses start adding more arrows and more boxes to cover even the not-so-common scenarios. Except now, the whole setup doesn't fit on a single page. So instead, the company starts printing entire books. Sometimes you follow an arrow that takes you to another box on the same page, but in other cases, the arrow tells you to flip to page such and such and continue the conversation from there. Okay, so now the bosses are so happy. With these giant multi-page manuals, the customer service reps can handle almost any scenario, and training has become really cheap. You have to just hire a person, give them a phone and a manual, and off they go. And sure, occasionally the conversations with a customer have like these awkward pauses when the agents have to like flip to a different page or jot something down. But you know, overall, the customers are still generally satisfied with the interactions. And let's say some time goes by and some new boss comes in and they realize that in all these intervening years while the company has been operating this way, uh, computers have become much cheaper and, and better and faster. So they get this idea of taking the entire customer service manual and making it digital. So it still has the same concept of prompts and responses and transitions from box to box or state to state, if you will. But now it's all in just some big database. The customer service agent just has to click to select what the customer had said, and the computer just tells you how to reply and what to do and so on. And the note taking can be done directly on the computer. All right, now business is going really well. No more heavy manuals, no more awkward shuffling of pages. And now it's even cheaper and more straightforward to add new conversational paths and entirely new scenarios. 
Like, what if the customer wants to discuss the weather? Well, no problem. We can add conversational states for that. And if the customer complains about the neighbor's dog barking, we can accommodate that too. And we don't even have to print a new manual each time. Also, we've expanded beyond phone support. Now customers can message us online and entire chat conversations can be facilitated by the same customer service manual. Then comes the next bright idea from leadership. Somebody up there notices that computers have become really good at understanding human speech and also synthesizing speech. So you can give a computer some text and it can say it out loud in a very believable human sounding way. It might even add a few random coughs and pauses and <clears throat> ums just to make it sound good. So the bosses go ahead and replace most of the customer service department with computer software that can take phone calls, listen to the customer, and then reply back using the same huge database from before. And the customers don't even seem to notice they're talking to a computer. And at this point, you might be saying, wait a minute, I know what this is. You're talking about the Turing test. And yes, this does sound a lot like that. We are intentionally fooling people into thinking that they're talking to other human beings, even though they're speaking with a machine. I suppose in a real Turing test scenario, the human judges are expecting to be tricked, so they're extra attentive to details that might give away the humanity or roboticity, is that even a word, of whoever or whatever they're communicating with. But in our customer service scenario, the customers don't have any a priori reason to suspect anything. Maybe it's easier to get away with trickery this way, but actually the Turing test is not the point that I was trying to make here. Let's take a step back. Let's go back to a time where our company still employed humans to talk on the phone and in the chat rooms, but all the interactions were completely scripted with our software. Now let's imagine the following kind of crazy scenario. There's a human agent doing customer service online. Their job is to communicate with customers by chat only and specifically in Portuguese. However, the agent does not speak Portuguese at all. Their native language is English and they've never studied any other tongue. Okay, but like, how would that work? Well, keep in mind that in this scenario, we're just doing online text chat. So this agent sees text written in Portuguese and then they do simple pattern matching to look up the next action from their customer service manual. And the manual tells them how to reply. But again, the agent just types out whatever text they have to without any real insight into what the text actually means. And yes, the word means is italicized in my episode transcript. Okay, so yes, I know this is wildly impractical and kind of pointless, but imagine that it could be done. So this English-only speaker is taking in text in another language and replying in that same language without understanding any of it. They're also taking notes as directed, but these are strictly internal and they can be in English. Now let's think about this from the customer's point of view. They had a chat online in Portuguese and were able to resolve whatever customer service issue they wanted to resolve. They spoke with somebody from the company and that person on the other end was polite, helpful. They used correct grammar and spelling 
and they obviously spoke Portuguese, right? If this kind of ridiculous premise sounds familiar to you, you might have heard of the Chinese room, or as it's often called, the Chinese room argument. This argument was put forward by the philosopher John Searle in 1980, and Searle presented a thought experiment where you have a person inside a room where the only communication with the outside world is possible through a small mail slot through which you can pass pieces of paper. Now, a person on the outside who speaks Chinese can pass notes to the person in the room. However, the person inside the room does not speak, read, or at all understand Chinese. Instead, what they have is a pencil, some paper, and an enormous catalog that tells them exactly how to reply and what to do for any possible input. So the person accepts the note from the outside, does some pattern matching to determine which action to take, and then writes or copies a reply on another piece of paper and sends that back out through the mail slot. And just like in our customer service chat room, none of this is meant to be practical or useful. It's just a fun experiment in our minds. Some folks call this sort of setup an intuition pump, which is a great term, although it's sort of meant to be a criticism of the argument. So what is the point here? Well, Searle's argument was meant to show the absurdity of saying that there is any real, quote, understanding happening here. The person inside the room, by design, does not speak, read, or in any way understand the Chinese language. The response catalog, just like the customer service manual in our earlier example, is just this inert object. It might seem dynamic when we think of a computer system powering these responses, but it could just as easily be represented with a stack of index cards or a huge piece of paper with boxes and arrows. How could we assign any real understanding here? And the room, well, it's just a room. It's basically an enclosure meant to separate the system inside of it from the outside world. So Searle's point was that it would be absurd to say that the room somehow understands Chinese. And by the same analogy, any computer program would never constitute or be sufficient for a mind. As someone might say, no strong AI for you. So now let's take a step back and explore the connection between all these concepts. What does a computer program, a customer service manual, and a room full of cards with Chinese writing on them have in common? But before we do that, let's discuss some recent listener feedback. But please keep thinking about these concepts. Are you still thinking about them? Okay, good. All right. So back in the first episode of the podcast, we discussed how to encode spoken voice in a digital format so that somebody far in the future could recover the sound and listen to the message. I suggested sampling the sound wave at some fixed sampling rate and then representing the individual loudness levels as 16-bit binary integers. If you recall, we could write down these binary values using rocks and seashells to represent ones and zeros. The idea was that somebody in the future could use the shared language of mathematics to recognize binary numbers and then reconstruct the sound wave. Now, one of the challenges is that a wave, for example, a sine wave, oscillates around zero, so sampling over time requires both positive and negative numbers. So how do we communicate negative numbers if all we have is ones and zeros to work with? There is no negative sign in our message alphabet. So my suggestion was to use what's known as the sign magnitude notation, 
where the first most significant bit of every number is zero if the number is positive and one if the number is negative. And to get this point across, the audio message would start with a pure sine wave. So if somebody graphs the values over time, they would start at zero, go up, curve back down to zero, and so on. This first hump would look very familiar to any civilization that understands math. It looks just like the value of sine x as x goes from zero to pi. And then the next group of binary numbers would look just like the first group, except they would all start with a one bit in the front. This would strongly hint to the reader that these are just the same values, but negative. For example, as the wave goes from pi to two pi. Do you remember this discussion? Go and listen to the first episode if you don't. I'll wait. Okay, so in response to this, we have a listener named Dan in Tokyo, and he suggested a simpler approach that avoids the complexity of having to communicate how to encode negative numbers. So here's the idea. After sampling the sound digitally, we can find the lowest negative value that we recorded, and then we shift the entire wave up such that the lowest value becomes zero and all the other values move up by the same amount. So if somebody were to graph the result, it would still look like the familiar wave pattern. So I think this is a great workaround and it really simplifies the amount of information that has to be somehow encoded or implied in this message. So thank you, listener Dan. Okay, and in the second episode of the podcast, we discussed quines, which are computer programs that emit their own source code when executed. And we have listener Tilo in San Francisco, who suggested that we discuss the computational concept of fixed points. And if we follow this rabbit hole, it leads us to something called Kleene's recursion theorem, and then onto quines in such a way that is so wonderfully meta that I'm sort of contractually obliged to talk about this on this podcast, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to drag you down into the rabbit hole with me. In the quine episode, I had mentioned sort of casually that it's possible to construct quines in any common programming language. Well, why must this be so? The proof of this is actually quite elegant and not terribly long, but it would be very hard to describe it verbally in an audio podcast. Plus, I'll be honest with you, I don't think I have the pedagogical chops of someone like, I don't know, Grant Sanderson of the 3 Blue on Brown YouTube channel to explain a proof like this, even in a multimedia context. So let me instead try to sketch out the components that go into the proof, and I'll leave it as an exercise to the listener to do the hard work of actually studying the proof. Let's start with concept number one. When discussing quines, we have to specify that a programming language has to be Turing complete and that it has to be a reasonable language. And there are some caveats around this, but I'm not going to get into it. But pick any common programming language that you've heard of or maybe worked with directly. Chances are it's admissible. So Python, Java, C++, Go, Basic, all of these qualify. What does it mean to be Turing complete? Now, we touched upon this briefly in the previous episode where we discussed cellular automation. But in plain terms, Turing completeness of a machine or language means that you can perform any computation. So do you like video games? Do you have a, I don't know, Playbox 3000 at home? I know it's not a real game system, but this podcast isn't sponsored, so I'm making one up. 
So your Playbox 3000, which was released, let's say, a year ago, it can also probably play games that were made for the Playbox 2000 from like a decade ago, and even the original Playbox from over 20 years ago. Now, you may think this is all very technically impressive and admirable, or maybe you take it for granted that this can be done. For example, you probably have also messed around with emulator software on your personal computer, and it allows you to play classic arcade games, which are probably also pretty old. So it should come as no surprise that a general purpose computer can simulate another such computer. The typical use case is that your modern high power computer or games console could simulate an older, less powerful computer or of a similar model or maker. But it doesn't have to be that way. For example, you could emulate other computer architectures. Your Playbox may be able to use emulation to let you play a game originally built for some rival platform like GameStation. And if you're patient enough, you could simulate a modern computer system on a much older computer system. It's just that the simulation will run very slowly. But the speed isn't important for what we consider the abstract concept of computation. The intuition I'm trying to build here is that all practical general purpose computers are basically alike in this sense. Given enough time and memory, any computer can compute anything that another computer can. And this loosely is what it means to be Turing complete. You can write any computation you want in Java, and you could write an equivalent computation in Python or Haskell or Lisp or x86 assembly. Just pick your favorite. Okay, let's keep this in mind as we move on to the next building block of our proof. Okay, here's important concept number two. We can come up with a numbering scheme to number all possible computer programs. How do we do this? Okay, well, let's start with a practical approach. Of course, we have to pick some specific language or computer architecture to do this numbering. If we're dealing with digital computers, then a program is just some string of ones and zeros. If we interpret the string as a binary representation of a natural number, then that number represents the program. We can then organize and sort all valid programs by their number and assign a unique index to each. So let's say the first valid program is at index zero, the next one is at index one, and so on. So for example, you might say, I have a program here that takes two numbers and adds them. And I might say, ah, yes, that is program number 653 in our catalog. Or you might say, I have a program here that happens to be a word processor. And I would say, ah, yes, I see that is program number 53 quintillion 257. Now what's cool about this numbering scheme is that you could do the same thing for programs expressed in any high level language. For example, let's say that the shortest valid Java program is exactly 10 bytes long, and I'm just making this up. Now this can be program zero in our catalog. There might be multiple valid Java programs of this length, so we can assign numbers to them based on, let's say, an alphabetical ordering. We then consider all valid Java programs that are 11 bytes long, then 12, and so on. And again, we have this equivalence between a piece of Java code like print line hello world and a number like 1,234,000. Is it weird to think of computer programs as just numbers in a catalog? Well, it might be, but the cool thing about this mapping is that it allows us to treat computer programs as numbers and manipulate them using the same mathematical tricks. Time for concept number three. This one is called the SMN theorem. Just those three letters, Sierra, Mike, November, if you prefer. 
In a nutshell, this theorem tells us that if we have a computer program that takes M, as in Mike, inputs, and N, as in November, additional inputs, we can rewrite this program as a new program where the first M, as in Mike, inputs are fixed or hard-coded, and now, now there are only N, as in November, free variables. And M, as in Mansi. In very practical terms, let's say you write some code that accepts two numbers, X and Y, and returns the result of X plus Y. For any value of X, we could write a new program that takes that value of X as a hard-coded value in the body of the program, and the new program only accepts y as input. It's trivial to see that the new program would return the same value for any input y as the original program for a given value of x. And what's important to note is that rewriting the original program this way can be fully automated, i.e. computable. In other words, there exists a computer program that takes another computer program as its input and outputs a modified computer program where some of the original program's inputs are now hard-coded. So this idea of computer programs that take other computer programs as input. Well, if you've worked with compilers or interpreters before, this concept is probably not so counterintuitive. And remember how we said that programs could be thought of as just natural numbers? In which case, giving a program as input to another program is not different than asking a program to crunch a number. And that's something we're surely comfortable thinking about, right? Okay, time for concept number four. Let's talk about Kleene's recursion theorem. In this theorem, we start with any function on natural numbers. Let's call it f of n. And this function has to give us an output for any possible value of n. As a reminder, natural numbers are just non-negative integers, so 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, and so on. So for every natural number, this function gives us an output that's some other natural number. And remember, we can also think of computer programs as being represented by natural numbers. What Kleene's recursion theorem tells us is that for any function f of n that works just the way we described, there exists some value n such that there is a computer program with the number n in our catalog, and there's another computer program with the number f of n in our catalog, and these two computer programs are equivalent to each other. That means that these two programs will always give us the same output for any input or they will equally fail to give us an output for the same input for which they're undefined. This value of n, as in November, is called the fixed point for the function f. Okay, so we looked at four building blocks so far. We discussed how all Turing-complete machines or languages are equivalent. We discussed the concept of assigning numbers to programs such that any given program could be thought of as having a specific numeric index in some infinite catalog. We discussed how it's possible to automatically transform a program that accepts some input into another program where that input is assigned to a value. Finally, we discussed the existence of fixed points for functions that operate on natural numbers. If you are comfortable with these building blocks, I encourage you to look up the full proof that demonstrates the existence of quines. The gist of the proof is that we can construct a program that takes another program and returns its index in our program catalog. By Kleene's theorem, we know there must be some program whose place in the catalog is equivalent to the program itself. That is to say that there exists a program that computes a number, and that number happens to be the program's place in the catalog, which makes it a quine. 
Obviously, what I just said is a little bit high-level and hand-wavy, so in the transcript of the episode, I included a link to a very nice proof by mathematician David Madore that connects all the concepts above in a nice, concise summary. So thank you, listener Tilo, for bringing up this deeply fascinating subject. The building blocks described previously are also fundamental to understanding Gödel's theorem, and of course also the central topic of Hofstadter's Gödel, Escher, and Bach. Yeah, that guy again. And if you want to shoot me an email that's sure to send me down another deep rabbit hole like Tilo did, I'm looking forward to hearing from you at thebeyondpod at gmail.com. And of course, the transcript of this episode is available at thebeyondpod.com. Again, that's thebeyondpod.com. So, that was quite a detour. All right, we're here. Let us never speak of the shortcut again. Why did the philosopher John Searle construct this thought experiment in this manner? So this goes back to Turing machines. See, it's all connected, even the seemingly random digressions. These machines are these abstract models for computation, and in practice we could build computing machines that are mechanical, or based on simple electronics like vacuum tubes, or based on transistors, or pipes with water flowing through them, or billiard balls, or any number of ways, none of which are exactly practical. But the Church-Turing thesis shows us that all of these would be equivalent to each other. So whatever your high-end desktop computer can do could also be computed through a careful arrangement of beer bottles on strings connected to hamsters running in wheels with some dominoes in the mix for good fun. So we know, especially from recent experience with actual online chatbots, that computers can at least appear to understand language. And computers have been successfully fooling human judges on Turing tests since at least the 1990s. And as we've discussed, computers are Turing machines. So in Searle's example, he describes a machine in the form of a room with cards, pen, paper, and a person following some simple mechanical instructions. This room could be equivalent in its programming to, let's say, a digital computer program that's a Chinese-speaking chatbot. The way the argument is constructed is supposed to prime your intuition in favor of saying, well, no, there is no real understanding here. The room is just a room. The instructions are just paper. The human in the room doesn't understand Chinese and in fact could probably be replaced with a mechanical device. So we cannot assign attributes like thinking and understanding and having a mind to the Chinese room. And by the equivalence of Turing machines, the argument could be extended to any computer with any programming. No matter how sophisticated the hardware or the software might be, Searle's argument would, well, argue that it cannot have consciousness. What is my purpose? You pass butter. Oh my god. This is, of course, a philosophical argument from the realm of philosophy dealing with the nature of the mind. Out of respect for minds, I capitalized the word mind in the transcript. I hope minds like this. Now, I'm not a philosopher, and I'm also bad at arguing about philosophical topics, so I will not attempt to take Searle on directly. What I like about the argument, though, is that it makes you think about aboutness. It's very meta. It makes you think of topics like, is the mind computable? And if so, can we build a computer that, well, computes the mind? And if such a computer could be built, then we can build any number of equivalent machines in the Turing sense 
that perform the same computation. That means the simulated mind could be simulated equally on a digital supercomputer, on your personal laptop, on your exercise smartwatch, or a box with a bunch of vacuum tubes connected to mercury lines, or the aforementioned hamsters and wheels connected via dominoes to other ridiculous Rube Goldberg devices. Conversely, if we say that the mind is not computable, well, that's a pretty big claim to defend. That means that the mind, running on a biological brain, which is based on biochemistry, which is based on chemistry, which is based on quantum physics, so we're saying it's somehow more than its components in the sense of strong emergence. There must be then something extra physical that makes the mind special. And that's a pretty big claim to make. And it's hard to see how it would be a proper scientific argument if the specialness of the mind goes beyond the physical somehow. So I guess I am staking a claim here that I'm in the camp of minds being computable and therefore simulatable on any sufficient combination of hardware and software, even if the particular choice of hardware and software goes against every intuition of what objects we can bestow with the label of thinking or conscious systems. So once again, thank you so much for sticking with me through these discussions, rants, and many digressions. If you enjoyed this podcast, please press 1. If you dislike this podcast, please press 0. Thank you. Your plea has been... Rejected. Or better yet, email me at thebeyondpod at gmail.com and tell me what you think. And don't forget to ponder the Mew puzzle from earlier. We'll be talking about it next time. For now, thank you and see you all soon. Goodbye. <laughs>